Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I hope everyone out there is doing well. Today we're going to talk about a basic overview of how to handle the ventilator and how to set the ventilator for certain situations in the operating room specifically. Before we jump in, I do want to ask a favor. If you haven't already, please consider going to acrac.com survey, acrac.com survey, and filling out the short survey there is completely anonymous and will really help give me some information on who's listening and why so that I can show it to my department and make a good case for why I'm spending so much time making this podcast. All right, if you could do that, I'd really appreciate it. Let's jump into talking about ventilators in the operating room. You may wonder why I'm doing a podcast specifically on operating room ventilator modes that's because there are a few things about ventilating a patient in the operating room that are different from the ICU. And even though we've done some podcasts on ICU ventilator modes, we thought it was worthwhile to cover specifics of the OR here. So naturally, you may wonder, why is the OR different? First of all, ventilating a patient in the ICU, the goal is almost always to get them off the ventilator as soon as possible, whereas obviously in the operating room, the goal is to continue ventilating them until the surgery is over and you're ready for them to be extubated. Patients are usually only ventilated for a short period of time, usually a few hours, during their surgery, and most, but certainly not all, have relatively normal lungs going into surgery. We rarely operate on a patient with severe ARDS unless, of course, it's an emergency and we have no choice. In the ICU, of course, with the exception of patients with severe refractory ARDS, patients rarely receive neuromuscular blockade or general anesthesia while they're in the ICU. So patients are often awake while they're on the ventilator. This is as compared to the OR, where patients often receive neuromuscular blockers, and general anesthesia, of course, is the norm, and thus cooperation and synchrony with the ventilator is much less of an issue in the operating room than it is in the ICU. As you may imagine, because of these differences, the OR ventilator is not the same as the ICU ventilator. And of course, let's talk about how it differs. First of all, it's not as powerful a ventilator. It can't generate the same peak pressures, and that's because it usually doesn't need to. Patients with severe impairments in lung compliance, such as I mentioned before, patients with severe ARDS, are usually not having surgery. 
So in the setting of emergency surgery, a patient requiring extremely high airway pressures may actually need an ICU ventilator to be brought into the operating room. And I've had to do that on rare occasions where the operating room ventilator won't actually generate enough pressure to ventilate a patient where you need to bring in that ICU ventilator into the operating room. Another major difference is that OR ventilators are usually in a circuit with vaporizers, so you can deliver potent inhaled anesthetics, and they're also usually simpler. They have fewer modes because you don't need as many modes. Some ICU ventilator modes are designed for awake patients or assisting with prolonged weaning, and that's not usually necessary. In fact, it's really never necessary in the operating room. In this podcast, we're going to focus on basic modes and situations that affect ventilation in the OR. For a discussion of newer, more advanced modes, things like ASV, NAVA, PAV, you can see the Advanced Vent Modes podcast in the ICU section of the toolbox. So let's talk about modes. Ventilator modes can be divided into controlled or spontaneous modes. For practical purposes, all patients with induced paralysis or anesthetized to the point of apnea require controlled ventilation. Even if a mode that allows for spontaneous breath is programmed, such as pressure support or SIMV, all new OR ventilators will revert to a controlled mode if the patient is apneic. So functionally, at a mode like SIMV that allows extra breaths, the patient won't actually be taking extra breaths, and so it doesn't matter that they're allowed to take it. This is, of course, most of the time during a case when they're fully anesthetized and paralyzed. In controlled modes of mechanical ventilation, the machine controls most of the characteristics of the delivered breath, but the patient may be able to initiate or trigger the breath if they aren't fully paralyzed. In contrast, in spontaneous modes, the machine is entirely dependent on the patient to set their own respiratory pattern by initiating breaths, and the machine simply provides support to each breath in the form of inspiratory pressure. There are several controlled ventilator modes, and it may be helpful to consider them in the context of how they were developed. So the first positive pressure ventilators had only one mode, CMV, controlled mechanical ventilation. All breaths were totally controlled by the ventilator, and patients could not trigger breaths. So the patient had no control whatsoever over the ventilatory respiratory pattern. And though this is acceptable in a fully anesthetized patient, it's very uncomfortable, obviously, for a conscious patient. A modern refinement was the development of the intermittent mandatory ventilation, or IMV, in which the, pa- the machine delivers breaths according to a set respiratory rate and tidal volume. While the patient has no control over these mandatory breaths, the patient is, thanks to a series of valves, able to breathe between the mandatory breaths. So the patient-initiated breaths are wholly unsupported, meaning the patient only gets what he or she can pull through the circuit. So this makes IMV a fairly uncomfortable mode for the awake patient. But again, in the operating room, when a patient isn't going to be attempting to take breaths on their own, it doesn't matter as much. These days, we actually have gone further. So the next advancement in ventilator technology was the ability to detect patient effort and attempt to synchronize the prescribed breaths to the patient's respiratory effort. This led to the development of SIMB, synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation, which is still a very commonly used mode. And in SIMB, the machine is programmed to look for patient effort during a set window. And if the patient makes an effort during that window, the machine will give a breath. The machine detects patient effort by either a drop in pressure in the circuit, as the patient makes an inspiratory effort, or by detecting increased flow in the circuit, which would be a pressure-triggered versus a flow-triggered breath. Either one will work. If the machine detects an effort during the window, then a fully supported tidal breath is given. 
If the machine does not detect an effort, at the end of the window, the machine will give the breath anyway. And so in this way, a patient is guaranteed to receive whatever the full tidal volume number of breaths describes, or the full tidal volume for the prescribed number of breaths. And the machine will make an attempt to synchronize the breaths with patient effort. However, if the patient is breathing faster than the prescribed rate, for example, the respiratory rate is set at 10, but the patient is breathing 20 times per minute, the patient will only get 10 fully supported breaths. For the remaining breaths above the set rate, the patient will only get the amount of volume they can pull on their own through the circuit. But these days, we add pressure support to SIMV, so that they, or at least we have the opportunity to do that, so that patients can get some amount of support for those extra breaths. SIMV can be volume-cycled, where a set tidal volume is programmed in for each breath, or pressure-cycled, where a set inspiratory pressure is dialed in for each breath. But there is no guaranteed tidal volume, because in pressure-cycled modes, the tidal volume is dependent on airway, lung, and thoracic resistance and compliance. So there are four primary ventilator settings for SIMV that you're going to set if you set this mode. You'll set tidal volume, respiratory rate, FiO2, and PEEP, positive end expiratory pressure. In a further refinement, as I said, you can also add the pressure support that you want them to get if you want them to have any support for additional breaths that they take above the set rate. Newer ventilators may also have a PCVG, APC, or PRVC mode. Those are all names for the same thing. That's pressure control volume guarantee. Some, some companies call it adaptive pressure control, or some companies call it pressure-regulated volume control. All the same thing. This is a mode where you program in a desired tidal volume, and the ventilator adjusts the pressure it gives to try to achieve the goal tidal volume. In a patient making some effort, the vent will adjust the pressure it gives to complement the patient effort. This mode differs from standard volume control because the pressure gradually builds over time as the lung requires increasing pressure to expand. In PCVG, the delivered pressure is constant, so a square wave, until the set tidal volume is reached. The system dynamically adjusts the set pressure for each breath, or from breath to breath, to achieve the tidal volume, and the pressure is constant for any given breath. So, in other words, the machine will adjust to if you didn't get enough volume with breath one, it will give more pressure so that you get closer to the volume that it wants you to get or that you've set for the goal for breath two. So you could imagine a patient who you set, you say, I want them to have a 400 cc tidal volume. On breath number one, they only get 450 cc's. So on breath two, the machine gives more pressure so that then on breath two, they get 500 cc's. Then it gives a little less pressure until it zeroes in and gives the correct pressure, uh, the correct volume that you want them to get of that you dialed in, which was 400. So the pressure versus time curve would look like standard pressure control here, a square wave, but the plateau pressure could vary between breaths since the machine might change the pressure to get the required volume, and it wouldn't do that with pressure control where the pressure is the same on every breath. All right, let's talk now about the most common mode for spontaneous assisted ventilation, which is pressure support ventilation, or PSV. In pressure support ventilation, the provider prescribes an inspiratory pressure, or PEEP, and FiO2. The patient is able to determine their entire respiratory pattern, rate, tidal volume, length of breath, etc., and the machine only provides support in the form of pressure for each breath. The machine detects breaths as previously described, either flow or pressure triggered. Because the patient is able to determine their own respiratory pattern, pressure support is typically much more comfortable for awake patients, and the amount of pressure support provided can be titrated to achieve a desired tidal volume or minute ventilation. 
The amount required will depend on the respiratory system, compliance, muscle strength, airway resistance. Because this mode is fairly comfortable, we use it all the time in the ICU. In the operating room, of course, it's used less commonly during the start or in, in the main portion of a case because the patient, if the patient is paralyzed or heavily anesthetized, they aren't going to take any spontaneous breaths. However, if a patient is not paralyzed and does start to trigger the ventilator, it's perfectly acceptable to put them on PSV during the case if your OR ventilator has that mode. The ventilator, of course, will also have a backup mode, so if the patient were to get deeper or stop triggering breath and they were apneic, usually for somewhere around 30 seconds, then the ventilator will switch to a mandatory mode, such as SIMV or whatever the backup mode is set at. The mode of PSV is also commonly used for patients spontaneously breathing, for example, during an LMA case where you have an LMA in place and they're breathing the whole case, you can either let them breathe without any support or you can give them some support by putting them on pressure support ventilation. So this is used at times in the operating room, either because your patient starts to breathe and they're not synchronous with the vent and you'd rather not get them deeper or paralyze them because you don't have to. So you say, let's put them on pressure support. Maybe they'll be more synchronous and often that will be a good go-to. And of course, if you want them breathing spontaneously anyway, like with an LMA. More commonly, pressure support is used at the end of the case once a patient is starting to wake up and taking breaths that you can see because you see negative deflections in the airway pressure tracing, negative deflections in the end tidal CO2 tracing, or the actual respiratory rate is higher than the set rate. So when you notice that they're starting to breathe on their own, you can then switch them to pressure support and let them be a little more comfortable as they start to wake up at the end of the case. The other spontaneous mode used in the operating room is not really a mode at all. It's just, quote, the bag or manual breathing. When the patient is taken off the ventilator and switched to the bag, they take breaths completely on their own, assuming you don't squeeze the bag to help them. They get no support from the ventilator at all. They'll also have no peep unless you close the pop-off valve slightly to maintain some positive pressure during expiration. Remember, they have a breathing tube in place, and so if you put them on the bag and give them no help, it's actually harder for them to breathe through that tube than, it's, than it is for them to breathe without a tube in at all. So you want to take that into account when you're observing them and looking at their tidal volume breaths. You're not giving them anything to compensate for the added resistance of that breathing tube that they wouldn't have if they didn't have it in place. But if you put a patient on the bag and they're spontaneously breathing and they look great, that's a pretty good sign. So let's talk about settings. Do you need to think about the same things in the OR that you do in the ICU, like keeping the FiO2 lower if possible, making sure to have low tidal volume ventilation, lung protective ventilation, and have some PEEP? And the answer is yes. Even though OR anesthesia uh, is only a limited amount of time, and we don't have patients for days or weeks in the operating room, we still want to keep these things into account. So there's reasonable evidence that taking a combination of these things into account, so PEEP of at least 5, a relatively low tidal volume, 6 to 8 mLs per kilo of predicted body weight, and potentially recruitment maneuvers periodically, there's been some studies showing various outcomes with those, will help present post, prevent post-op respiratory complications. The recruitment maneuvers can also have adverse effects, such as hypotension by reducing preload or even causing a pneumothorax or putting pressure on a suture line if there are sutures in the thorax. So you have to be careful when you do those. 
Low FiO2 is a little harder to say. We do know that you can start seeing free radicals measured in exhaled gas just one hour after supplemental oxygen is added. And we know that 100% FiO2 causes inflammation in lungs after just a few hours. And we also know that absorptive atelectasis is a real thing. And that occurs when we use 100% oxygen or nearly 100% oxygen, and we fill the alveoli with that high amount of oxygen. And as the oxygen is taken up into the blood in greater volumes than CO2 is delivered to the alveoli, the alveoli will shrink until it has nothing left to keep it open. It can collapse and then become atelectatic. Using less than 100% FiO2 can prevent or mitigate this because nitrogen delivered to the alveoli is not taken up into the lungs or taken up into the blood. And so, of course, the trade-off you have to keep in mind is that if you use lower FiO2, you're going to have a... uh, faster time to desaturation if the patient goes apneic. So now let's move to talking about a common approach. And by no means is this the only approach, but this is kind of a common approach to think about how we manage uh, the vent in the operating room. So the most common approach is to mask ventilate the patient with the ventilator switch set on manual and the pop-off valve set at completely open or maybe just slightly closed. And leaving the pop-off valve closed further than that will often be uncomfortable for the patient, but it may be necessary in a patient who needs help to maintain alveoli open and avoid atelectasis. So for the most part, a normal healthy patient, we would just leave that pop-off valve open and let them breathe comfortably and get pre-oxygenated. But for a patient with bad atelectasis starting out the case, you may need to have more PEEP by turning, closing that pop-off valve while they're breathing. Then once the patient has been induced, the ventilator should be set on a mandatory mode, such as volume control, because they'll now be apneic, either from the induction agents or from the neuromuscular blockade if you used it. Initial settings are often chosen poorly or just left to the default of the machine, and this is a problem. Initial tidal volumes should be 6 to 8 mLs per kilo of ideal body weight. Often, ventilators will default to 500 or 550 mLs of tidal volume, which for a small person is much too high. PEEP should be at least five. I often use six to eight in obese patients. Respiratory rate should be set initially around 12 and then adjusted based on end tidal CO2. The IDE ratio often defaults to one to two, which is usually fine, but in some patients with obstructive lung disease, this may not be sufficient. You may need to increase it to one to three or even one to four. If you see your flow time curve, and the tracing on that flow time curve is not coming back to baseline during expiration, this means the patient is not fully exhaling. If this is the case, they'll start to develop dynamic hyperinflation, also known as auto-peep, which can build up and cause hemodynamic compromise. You can imagine as their lungs get more and more overinflated, the pressure in their thorax builds up more and more until you're not going to have any venous return. In this scenario, you want to decrease the IDE ratio, meaning make it 1 to 2 to 1 to 3 to 1 to 4, or inspiratory time can also be uh, decreased. So that will, by definition, extend your expiratory time until the patient can fully exhale. If you can't directly adjust the ratio or inspiratory time on your ventilator, then you'll need to increase the flow and or decrease the respiratory rate. But the point is to do something to allow more exhalation time. And if you're really in crisis, just unplug them from the ventilator and let them exhale into the room. You may notice that the exhaled tidal volume measured by the ventilator and the tidal volume you have set in a volume mode are not always the same. In a PCVG mode, this is because the machine is constantly, as I said before, adjusting the pressure to try to get a certain volume. 
In SIMV, this can be due to small leaks in the system around the cuff, for example, as well as a small amount of air going into the gas sampling line. If the difference is large, more than maybe 50 cc's, you should investigate the cause. Does the ET tube cuff need more air? Is there a leak in the ventilator tubing, etc.? There may come a point in the case when you notice notches starting to appear in the end tidal CO2 tracing or extra breaths being taken depending on which mode you are using. For example, in an IMV mode, which is still present on some old ventilators, patients are not able to take their own breaths, and all you'll see is notching in the CO2 tracing as they are attempting to take them but can't. In more modern ventilators that have SIMV or PCVG, you may start to see extra breaths because when a patient triggers the ventilator in these modes, it will deliver an additional breath. There are three approaches to take when a patient starts to attempt to breathe on their own in the middle of a case. The most common is to give additional paralytic and remove the ability of the patient to take their own breaths. Another commonly utilized approach would be to increase the anesthetic depth and therefore do the same thing, stop them from having the drive to breathe. You can also increase the minute ventilation, thereby lowering their CO2, which also by uh, by lowering the CO2, which also inhibits the carbon dioxide-mediated respiratory drive, so again, another way to decrease their drive to breathe. An alternative strategy, if the case does not require paralytic, is to switch the patient, as I said earlier, to a spontaneous mode like pressure support ventilation and let them breathe on their own. It's important to note, to note that the fact that the patient is starting to breathe does not necessarily mean the patient is waking up, though almost guaranteed your surgeon will tell you the patient is waking up if they notice that they're, they're taking their own breaths. It's perfectly acceptable, though, to have a patient breathing spontaneously during a case as long as complete neuromuscular blockade is not needed. I've had patients breathe spontaneously during big spine cases while they're prone. If the surgeon is using neuromonitoring and you aren't using paralytic, it's a great way to keep the patient a little more comfortable. So it's certainly possible to do. At the end of the case, you'll want a patient to begin breathing because you're theoretically going to want to wake them up and take out the breathing tube. And so usually to accomplish this, you want to allow the CO2 to rise by turning down the respiratory rate. And this will increase their drive to breathe as their PCO2 goes up. Once they're breathing, then you can switch them either to pressure support or all the way to manual. And usually, if they still have some degree of neuromuscular blockade on board, they may need pressure support to be able to get reasonable tidal volumes until they're more awake and you've either reversed them or the blockade has gone away more on its own when they can then be switched to manual ventilation and take reasonable tidal volumes on their own. Once the patient has been reversed and is breathing spontaneously and you put them on manual ventilation, you can then assess their readiness for extubation. Extubation criteria usually include the ability to take good tidal volumes of at least 5 mLs per kilo, maintain a normal oxygen saturation, a normal CO2, which you're going to follow your end tidal CO2, follow commands and demonstrate adequate strength by breathing, having four twitches and tetanus with no fade, having no ongoing surgical bleeding, or any concern for major acid-based disorders. Typically, people will extubate patients on 100% oxygen, but it may make more sense, or at least you could make an argument for doing it on slightly less, maybe 80%, to help avoid some of that absorption atelectasis. If the patient has significant lung disease, the end-tidal CO2 may not be a good predictor of PCO2, and in this case, you may need to check a VBG or an ABG to make sure you know whether they correlate and how large the gap is between them. All right. Let's talk about some special cases that may come up and the way to think about them. So 
there are some specific instances in the operating room that influence ventilation. And these include laparoscopic surgery, steep Trendelenburg position, and the need for one lung ventilation. Both laparoscopic surgery and the Trendelenburg position reduce lung compliance, and therefore higher peak pressures are required to achieve a given tidal volume. During laparoscopic surgery, the abdomen is insufflated with CO2, which causes pressure against the bottom of the diaphragm. Therefore, more pressure is required to inflate the lungs and push the diaphragm down. When patients are placed in the Trendelenburg position, so head down, the abdominal organs press up against the bottom of the diaphragm, causing a similar effect. If the patient is euvolemic, PEEP, for example, increasing PEEP to 10, can be augmented to counter some of these effects. Occasionally, the decreased compliance will lead to very high peak pressures. And in these situations, you may have peak pressures higher than you really are comfortable with, particularly in a volume control mode. If this occurs, it may be useful to switch to pressure control or pressure control volume guarantee to reduce the peak pressure for any given tidal volume. This is possible as you are switching from a triangle pressure tracing to a rectangular pressure tracing. Insufflation during laparoscopic surgery will also cause the PCO2, and therefore the end tidal CO2, to rise as the CO2 in the abdomen is absorbed into the blood. Respiratory rate can be increased to ventilate off this CO2, but you have to pay close attention because once insufflation has ended, if you leave the respiratory rate at the same level, you'll end up with a very hypocarbic patient. One lung ventilation can be achieved in three ways, either by advancing a standard endotracheal tube into one main stem bronchus, using a double lumen endotracheal tube, or using a bronchial blocker. The details of indications for one lung ventilation and how to place a double lumen tube will be covered, will be covered in other podcasts. Here, we'll just limit our discussion to how the use of one lung ventilation affects the way you program the ventilator settings. When you begin ventilating only one of the two lungs, you'll want to reduce your tidal volume. Usually, reducing the tidal volume in half does not leave enough for adequate gas exchange, so it's more common to reduce by about one-third. If you were ventilating both lungs at 500 mLs, you might try 300 or 350 for just one lung while keeping your eye on airway pressures. Pressure-cycled modes, like pressure-cycled assist control, are difficult to use in this setting because you will not have a guaranteed tidal volume. It's more common to use volume control and reduce the volume to keep peak pressures less than 30 as long as there's adequate oxygenation and ventilation. All right. That's it for today. Check out the website, ACRAC.com, where you can see and download all of the episodes. And, of course, you can leave comments, which are really crucial. We can all learn from the things that you have to say. Is this how you use vents in the operating room? Are there other special situations that I didn't cover that you think are important for people to think about when they're learning how to operate a ventilator in the operating room? Let us know. You can, of course, also reach me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. And... I am always happy to hear from listeners and hear what you have to say. Again, please take a few minutes and fill out that survey, acrac.com slash survey. I would really appreciate it. And, of course, if you're enjoying the show and you haven't already, please take a minute and go to iTunes where you can leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon with another episode of ACRAC. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.